All right, so last week, Mother's Day, we saw how the people of Israel had moved from the Red Sea after chapter 15 where they gave this great song of praise and how they had moved from there and they had proceeded to grumble and complain at every stop. So there's this trilogy of snapshots that showed how the people of God were discontent in their hearts. And it ends with them ultimately quarreling with Moses. So the simmering discontent erupted into outright conflict at Rephidim. And that's why it's called that, because they quarreled with God. This whole episode, from chapter 12 through 18, is how God moves with the people as they make their way from bondage to Sinai, where they will become God's covenant people as a nation, where they will enter into a national covenant. And so these chapters, these episodes that we see are all pictures of how God travels with us along the way. How God travels with us along the way. You may wonder, what do these two things have in common? Ben, why didn't you just treat the attack by the Amalekites in one chapter and in one sermon and do Jethro in another because after all, uh, you know, I could preach a message on either one. You can use the Jethro and his advice as a veritable textbook on leadership. But the two of them go together. The two of them go together, and it's seen in how Jethro is even included in this section. For example, if you look at verse 5 of chapter 18, it says that Jethro came to Moses when they were encamped at the mountain of God. But they don't get to the mountain of God until chapter 19, verse 2. So what happens here with Jethro historically takes place after they've arrived at Sinai. But Moses didn't want to record it as taking place then. He wanted to sort of deal with it first. Because once he's at Sinai, the focus of chapters 19 through 24 is the covenant. So he wants to deal with the material presented in this situation with Jethro. But it somehow needs to correspond with something that took place just before they get to Sinai. So he puts them there so that way we can see. In chapter 17, verses 8 through the end of the chapter, we see a group of people attack. A group of Semitic non-Israelites. We see the Amalekites make their debut onto the scene of the Bible. The Amalekites are descended from Esau's grandson. So you may recall... Isaac, Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had twins, or, well, Rebecca had twins, Jacob and Esau. And so the Amalekites are descended from the grandson of Esau, whose name was Amalek. So here you have this group of people who were affinity-wise closely related to the Hebrews, 
but yet they become the quintessential enemy of the people of God through the rest of Scripture. The Amalekites represent, as, as, as a people group, the reality depicted in Scripture in Genesis 3, where there's going to be continual conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And so there is continual war between the Amalekites and the Israelites. And that reaches its climax in the Persian era, nearly a thousand years after this took place, where Haman, the Agagite, Haman, named after one of the most famous Amalekite kings, conspires. You know the story of Esther, how he conspires and he tricks the king into signing a law that basically would allow the extermination of the Jewish people. There will be war forever with the seed of the serpent. But then, in chapter 18, you have Jethro, who 18.1 takes pains to point out, to remind us that he is a priest of Midian. The Midianites were descended from a guy named Midian, who was a son born to Abraham by way of Keturah, his wife that he took after Sarah died. So they too are related to the Israelites. But the Midianites were not monotheists. The Midianites were pagans. And ultimately, it's the Midianites who hire Balaam to try to curse the people of Israel. But here you have a Midianite priest not just a priest, he's called the priest of Midian. They had more than one priest. By calling him the priest, it's pointing out his high rank in their society. So here's a senior ranking priest of Midian, and he shows up. And instead of attacking, instead of condemning, he assists. So this passage, 17.8 through 18, shows us a glimpse of how the reaction of foreign peoples are to what God has done. And we see that along the way, there's those who attack and there are those who assist. And it all hinges upon their response to what God has done. So, on the one hand... This passage right here shows out how people respond to God's redemptive acts. Jethro, we are told, had heard about everything God did. And then he comes in response. That means we can be confident that the Amalekites had heard what God had done. The Amalekites' response, though, as we learn in Deuteronomy 25 when Moses repeats this, was one of godlessness. And they looked at the Israelites wandering in the desert as an easy target. And so, they attacked them in the rear of their formation. And they attacked in such a way that they were picking off the weak, the old, the vulnerable. And they represented their hostility to God and their unrelenting attacks on the people of God. But yet, we see the priest of Midian coming and responding in faith 
and being welcomed. And so what God is doing for the people of Israel at this point in their history is reminding them that they are to be open to to converts. They are to be open to others who call on the name of the Lord. They are not to set up defensive barriers and shut off all contact from the outside world in a defensive posture. In other words, they're not supposed to become like the Amish. They are to maintain a welcoming posture. But this whole journey is a picture of discipleship. This whole journey is. They weren't ready to go straight up the way of the sea. They had to come along through the desert. This whole thing of being liberated from Egypt and getting the gods of Egypt out of their heart, this whole thing is a picture of what goes on spiritually in each of us. Now, what goes on here reminds me of two important truths. First, the people of Israel numerically were, were, were a sizable group. But there's a reality of people. They had just come out of slavery. And they had a slave's mindset. Have you ever seen someone with a slave's mindset or a peasant mindset? It's an I can't do anything for myself mindset. It's a, it's a weak, helpless mindset. So they may have been a lot of them. But they were easily, easily attacked. And they're attacked in the rear where they're vulnerable. And that's a reminder to me that I'm going through my life and I'm on a spiritual journey and attacks are going to come and they're going to come where I'm most vulnerable. They're going to come to you where you're most vulnerable. The Amalekites were not about to charge into Joshua and his fighting men in the front. So when temptation to sin comes, it's going to come where you're vulnerable, where you're weak, where you struggle. Have you ever noticed that in Egypt, the people of God are never, ever, ever called upon to take up arms or or do anything to effect their own liberation? But yet as soon as they're out, as soon as they've gotten across the Red Sea... As soon as, as we learn in 1 Corinthians, they are baptized into Moses and the passing through the Red Sea. And they have been liberated from bondage. Now they're on a journey in which God expects them to fight. Have you ever noticed that? Why couldn't God just keep doing what he'd been doing and let them just sit back and watch him kill the people? Because now we're talking about sanctification. And sanctification is a process that God enables and God motivates and God equips. But we must fight. We must mortify the flesh, which means put to death. And we actively participate in our becoming holy by willfully deciding not to sin, to turn from it, and to turn to Jesus in life. And so this whole thing is a picture of that. So the attacks will come, and you must be ready, because you are never as secure as you think you are. But then Jethro comes along, and it's a reminder of the fact that I am never as at the end of my rope as I think I am. 
God always sends a provider to make a way so that we can move forward with our mission. You ever feel like you're at the end of your rope? Like there's not one more step you can take? And yet somehow God always opens a door, a window, something, and he makes a way? That's what God does. So on the one hand, the Amalekites attacking warned us not to get haughty and overly secure and confident where we are, to keep our bearing, our situational awareness and all that. But Jethro's coming reminds us that the Lord takes care of his people and doesn't let them just just wallow in, in squalor. The Lord looks after his people. But this passage also shows us a glimpse of what the body should be like. What the people of God should be doing in the world. What it's going to take for them to function as the people of God on a mission. You may recall that all the way up through Exodus to this point, God's been saying that he's doing what he's doing for the glory of his name. And that is amazing. It's amazing that the news of what he had done in Egypt had reached all the way over to media. It's amazing that in the end of chapter 15, we learned that even the Philistines had heard. We're going to hear that even the Canaanites have heard. The word of what God had done had gotten around. And seeing the people of God serves either as an, as, a, as an irritant or as a source of joy. And there's nothing new in that. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that we're being paraded around and that to some we are the aroma of life and to others we are the aroma and the stench of death. People respond to us because we are associated with God. We are his people. And when they see us and they see what God has done in and through us, there's a response to that. Now, there are three things that this passage says that I think affect how we need to keep our mindset regarding our mission. Because we are on a mission. The first is that we must rely upon God's power. That's what 8 through 16 of chapter 17 is all about. We must rely upon God's power. Yes, Joshua needed to pick able-bodied men to go out and fight. Okay? This was time to strap on the sword, pick up the spear. Whatever weapon they had, it's possible historically that they didn't even have swords. If you think about it, they'd just come out of Egypt. The Egyptians surely would not have let their slaves arm themselves. So it could be that they had to pick up sticks and rocks. We don't know. But whatever, they had to, they had to pick up weapons of some kind and go out and do battle. But yet the whole point of Moses going up on that mountaintop is to underscore that in and of themselves, the people and their military prowess and all that are insufficient to the task. They cannot defeat the Amalekites. Now, 
I'm going to flip what I think most of you have heard. Most of you have heard this passage preached as a sermon about the importance of intercessory prayer. Moses goes up there, and what he's doing is he's interceding on behalf of the people, and he's, and, and he's praying to the, to the Father, and, and God blesses his prayers, and, and, and that's why they're victorious. It doesn't say he's praying. What, through the book of Exodus, has the staff of Moses been? It's a symbol of God's presence with his people. So when Moses goes up on that mountaintop and it does not record that he's praying and he's lifting up the staff, he is showcasing the visible presence of God amongst the people. He is not representing the people before God. He is reminding the people that God is with them. And how do I know or why do I think that? What is the last sentence of chapter 7, of, of, of verse 7, they ask, the last verse, the last sentence of the chapter, of the passage we read last week, is the Lord among us or not? And so Moses, they go out to battle, and Moses sits up there in a conspicuous place, and he holds up the staff that represents God's spirit and power with his people. He's communicating that. Now they're still in the schoolhouse. And so God has ordained that the people learn that there is a direct connection with their ability to succeed and his power being with them. Which is why whenever the staff is up, they're victorious. Whenever the symbol of God's presence is taken out of sight, they're losing. It's not that Moses' prayers stop being effective. They're learning. They're learning. Only when God's presence is with us are we going to be victorious. And so when they don't see God's presence anymore, it's a sign that they're not going to be victorious. And Moses is not playing a game. Okay, he's not going up, whoop, 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 whoop. Okay, he's not playing a game with the people. It's hard holding your hands up. After a while... Your hands are above your heart. Okay, I'm not a nurse or a doctor, but I can tell you what, I've had my hands up in the air for a while, and they, it, it, it's no fun. And holding a stick, I'll tell you what, when I was in the Army, I learned that any physical movement can become a torture. You know, they'll make you do this. Do that a hundred times, and your, hand, and your forearms are burning. I mean, it's crazy. Moses is exhausted. The Bible says that when he dies at 120, he had full vigor and strength. Great, but he's still, a, at this point, an 80-year-old man. So I don't think it means he had the full vigor of a 20-year-old. I mean that, I take it to mean that as a 120-year-old man, he could still get around. But he's an 80-year-old man here, holding up a stick and so Aaron and her come alongside. And if you want to talk intercessory prayer, this is where the intercessoriness comes in because Aaron is holding up his arm because Brother Moses, the people need to see the presence of God. And her, we don't really know who her is. Josephus tells us that it was Miriam's husband, but we don't know where Moses or, or where Josephus got that. Maybe he had access to some written record that's since been destroyed. But still, 
Whoever this Hur is, he's obviously close enough to Moses that he's able or entrusted to be there with him. So they basically take his arms, lock it. They sit him down so he's low enough for them to hold his arm up without themselves getting tired. And they hold his arms up while he's holding the staff. And right here, I'm convicted of the way we oftentimes think in terms of bearing each other's burdens. We often construe of our Christian walk and of our need to bear one another's burdens in very selfish terms, very autonomistic terms. My life is basically my life, and every now and then stuff comes up that I just can't handle on my own. So if you do your job as brothers and sisters, you're going to come along and help me deal with my personal stuff. And then, okay, I'll reciprocate, and when personal stuff comes up in your life, I'll come and help you with your personal stuff. And that's not wrong. It's just not everything. What is Moses doing here? He's doing his ministry. He's a prophet. He's the prophet. He's the only prophet of whom God says, I speak to him face to face as a man speaks with his friend. He's doing something here, his job. But he can't do it all by himself. The success of the people as a people depends upon other people coming alongside and bearing Moses' burden, his arms, literally. And I think there's direct tie-in. We have a mission here. And we have people who have stepped up and they have a burden to bear and that is their job, their ministry. Do we let them just carry it by themselves? Or do we come alongside and see that my good is bound up in Moses being able to keep his arms up? Because if Moses' arms drop for long... Well, the Amalekites are going to kill everyone down there, and then they're going to climb up this mountain and get me too. Our good is bound up in the good of each other. And the ministry that God has given one is for the good of all. And so when we come alongside like Aaron and her and help bear that, we're able to make it. So look for ways to help one another out. There are teachers who are going to be taking a break. And they're taking a break because we have a very shallow bench of teachers. Maybe some of you could volunteer to teach every now and then. Now I've gone from preaching to meddling, so I'll move on. But this relying upon God's power that verses 8 through 16 teach is a reminder of the reality and the prevalence of spiritual war. We're in a spiritual war. And it's easy for us to lose our bearing on the battlefield. It happens in war all the time. That's why friendly fire happens, is people forget where they are on the battlefield. That's why it's so significant what Moses says here in verse 15 when he says, the Lord is my banner or Jehovah Nisi. A banner is a military standard, a flag literally on the battlefield that serves as a rallying point 
for the troops so you know where you're at. So that way you know you're facing the right direction and shooting at the right people. Everyone has a banner. Everyone has something or someone around whom they rally and find their sense of purpose and being. Everyone does. Which is why Dante was able to write in his Inferno, in the outer rings of, of, of hell, he sees this, this, this endless crowd of people pursuing this banner that continues to move, always out of reach. They're seeking it to find their rest and their peace, but they can't reach it. Everyone has a banner they rally around. Is the Lord your banner? In the midst of this spiritual war where you have powerful forces vying for your soul, they will lie to you because they want to kill you. And it's easy to mistake truth for error or error for truth. And you got to keep looking above and through the fog and see that banner of the Lord and keep looking to that banner and it is the Lord himself. It is Jesus Christ crucified. He is our banner. Focus on Christ and you will be oriented in the right direction. Spiritual war can only be won with God's power. That's the first lesson this thing teaches us. The second is that we must maintain a winsome gospel witness. That's what I get out of chapter 18, verses 1 to 12. Jethro comes. He's the priest of Midian. Okay? Yes, he's Moses' father-in-law. But we learn back in chapter 4 that Moses really didn't get converted until the burning bush experience. So Jethro heard about Yahweh through Moses before he left for Egypt. Okay, but he probably just processed it the way most of these ancient Near Easterners would have done. And that is, there's a, there's a bunch of gods. And now you've met a new one. Okay. Well, in this chapter, we see that Jethro becomes convinced of the supremacy and superiority and utter uniqueness of Yahweh. In fact, every commentator, including the Jewish commentators, understand that what happens here in verses 1 through 12 is Jethro's conversion and joining the people. He hears Moses' recount. Moses takes him into the tent and tells the story. He testifies to everything God has done. And I love that he testifies to all the hardships they've met along the way. He didn't sugarcoat it. You want to know why I love the fact that Moses includes all the hardships they met along the way and how God delivered them from them all? You want to know why I love that? Because life has hardships. And if God, when he saved us, kind of plucked us up and ethereally moved us away, we would be utterly unrelatable. But the fact that God brings us through tough times and delivers us through those times 
enables us to be able to relate to a world where what they know is struggle and strife. So it is a gospel witness matter. And when he hears it, Jethro's response is he's overjoyed. And he confesses Yahweh's supremacy. He sacrifices. And he worships. And then in verse 12... He has a covenant meal with Aaron, who's the high priest of Israel and the elders of Israel, and it's in the presence of God. This signifies, brothers and sisters, that the fame of the Lord's name has reached so far, and God is so powerful that he's seeking converts. And he takes a pagan priest, and he makes him one of his people. And that happens because of a winsome gospel witness. And we know the rest of the Old Testament story is a sad one where they don't do the gospel witness thing. That's a sad fact. But how are we doing? The commandment of the Israelites was to create a culture and a climate and that was a come and see. You know, as the nations hear about you, they will come and check, they want to check this out. And I feel like there are times when we've, we meaning Christians, have structured our churches as a come and see culture. Come and check us out and you'll hear about Jesus. But what does Jesus command us in the Great Commission and then again in Acts chapter 1? Go and tell. Do we go and tell? We don't have to go to North Africa or, or Thailand or India. Maybe it's just telling your family. That's probably the hardest. You know, I'm, I'm pretty amazed that he goes on and listens to his father-in-law's advice. Because, man, you know, you know, don't, even if you are the father-in-law, you know it's hard to listen to your father-in-law's advice. Because you continually want to prove that you're a man who doesn't need advice from the dad of my wife. Okay? It's a pride thing, and you know it. But he's... He's humble enough and smart enough to realize my father-in-law is right. But go and tell. Maintain a winsome gospel witness. And God blesses that. But then in the last part of chapter 18, we see this, you could call it division of labor, whatever, but it's really ministry multiplication. Jethro watches He's an astute guy. And he sees that these people are standing around all day. And Moses is sitting there judging all day. And, you know, judging between my kids' disputes for 10 minutes wears me out. I can't imagine doing that for a living. Where all I hear day after day is people coming and arguing. And they have their point and their perspective. And, their per- and oh, who's in the right here? I don't care. You're both grounded. Okay? So Moses is getting worn out. And the people, it's tiring standing there all day. It's hot where they were. Right? It's hot. It's dry. And they're on their feet waiting their turn. Everyone is suffering. There's a breakdown of mission effectiveness. So what Moses institutes here is a level of government. 
We don't want to think of this in terms of delegating because he actually empowers them and releases them. And so it's ministry multiplication. And so he says, hey, break these people up into different size elements. You have your thousands, your hundreds, your fifties, and your tens. And man, that, that, that's easy preaching for an army guy because thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, well, that corresponds to squads, platoons, companies, and battalions. I mean, that makes sense perfectly. But for the rest of you, what are you talking about? Chain of command, right? And he says, let them be able men. So there's the competence there. They have to be able But then notice that the rest of the characteristics are focused on character. They must fear the Lord, be trustworthy, and hate a bribe. Those are character matters. So you find people who are competent, who are also qualified in regards to their character, and let them help you, Moses. Let them minister to the people so that way you are freed up to do the unique role that God has called you to do. Now in the church, we could have the same thing. We need division of labor. If one person tries to do it all, everybody's unhappy. But if someone is in charge of tens and someone's in charge of fifties or hundreds or thousands, metaphorically speaking, Then the work gets done, no one gets burnt out, and everyone is able to have each other's back because we are on a mission to make God look glorious. So, what we see here is a picture of of a harmonious civil society that's working where justice is able to be dispensed. And of course, sin breaks down society. That's good. You're going to see that in the judges. Sin breaks down society. But right here, for just a moment, you see a picture of how it's supposed to be. Division of labor where everyone's doing their part. We see a clear gospel witness. And we see the results of that. People are saved. And you see the reality of spiritual war. And the need to rally around and focus on the person of Jesus, who is our banner in the midst of conflict. If you get those three things, that's a pretty healthy community, right? Focusing on Jesus. So I ask you, what kind of community are we going to be? What kind of community are we going to focus on? How involved are you going to be in bearing one another's burdens? How involved are we, each other, going to be in making sure that all of the ministry gets done? Let's pray.